honest, we're fr- we don't riot when Iron Man died. We didn't burn down a fucking city. You know what I mean? We were just like, you know, we wept. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if there was a nerd riot on par with a championship? <laughs> it would just be a bunch of five thirty eighters just like clearing the street so they could march in formation. You know, just like check it out. This is gonna be so great. It'd be a whole bunch of like Darth Vader's like force choking each other. You know, like that's just that's all it's gonna be. It's a whole, a huge group of D&D nerds just throwing dice. <laughs> rolling right? dice. You know, like the crowds, the cops are like, please disperse. Hang on, I'll tell you if I disperse. Oh, no, I made my mistake. I'm not dispersing. Like, looting looting with a bag of holding, just like everything in one bag. Absolutely. A bunch of people as rogues running to the front of the line. Excuse me, looting is one of my class abilities. I get to go first. A nerd riot would be amazing. Tokyo tonight. What's going on, man? Hey, man, how's it going? Thank Good. You. How are you? I could have listed your credits for the re- for the rest of the hour. I, it, I'm glad you didn't because just what you said made me start to feel anxious and uncomfortable. Like, <laughs> geez, I, I hope I can live up to this person you're describing. Yeah, you're like, oh, I'm sorry, who's coming on again? Yeah, this is great. <laughs> can I just can I just listen to this guy talk? <laughs> Does that happen a lot? Do you get do you get approached by stuff that you've maybe forgotten that you even done? Yeah, in fact, uh, I it, a thing just dropped last week. Uh, I, I I did a thing for NASA JPL uh, mm. with Felicia Day and Rachel Bloom and a bunch of other people. Oh, uh, nice. uh, a, a very very cool educational science video, and uh, we did it so long ago. Um, and I don't know if we as humans became more aware of additional scientific information that required editing. Or if the scientists were like, no, you have to edit this in a very particular way because science is important and needs to be respected. But for whatever reason, it, the, release, the release was delayed for so long that I completely forgot that I had ever done it. <laughs> I, I think I did it five, six, seven years ago. So yeah. that, that, that just came out. Um, it, but in general, I tend to remember the, uh, the, the, things, nice. the things that I did. It's got to be so cool because I know a lot of uh, uh, scientists and people who are science communicators, but it's got to be just amazing to be able to to use your, you know, um, kind of extroversion and acting ability and knowledge that you do have in it to kind of bring it to, you know, a whole new generation of people each time and kind of express it in that way. Did you see yourself doing that at a certain point? You know, I have kind of come to accept as I've gotten older that I have an ability to communicate it just seems to be like one of my strengths. It seems mm. to be one of those places that as I leveled up as a human over time, a bunch of skill points got put into that particular ability. Right. And uh, science and space exploration and uh, climate change are areas that are extraordinarily important to me and have been for my entire life. So yeah. if I can use the communication skill that I seem to have kind of unintentionally developed to share some of that passion with people in the goal of the ultimate stated goal of creating an excitement in, in, in the minds of people 
to save the planet that yeah. mirrors the excitement that existed in people just to get to the moon, right. uh, then I will feel like uh, I have I've I've made some good choices and and I haven't wasted this opportunity that that I've been given it you know the privilege that I have right. Yeah, it's I mean, that's it's one of those things are like it's it's so weird because I feel like, you know, we can absorb kind of information. We've had to memorize lines or certain things or whatever. And then but to be able to relay that information is just a really weird thing because it's like, man, I only know some of this stuff because of really, really smart people. But you're able to kind of express not the I'm just saying, like, you know, not that you're not smart either. But you know what I mean? No, like, no, it's one I of those things that, where you've got it. Look, in, in that room, oh, I just noticed I can hear my producer on Ready Room going, can you just fix your headroom? Can you please just fix <laughs> We just need a little bit of headroom there. We just totally need, understand. We just need a little bit of headroom to breathe. I'm like, okay, Jason, yeah. here you go. I it. All right. I'm, not even, I'm not even working with you today, and I hear you in my IFP that I'm not wearing. So, um, I, um, uh, I'm not anywhere near the mm. education level and the level of understanding of a scientist. Yeah. But one of the things I think I can do is translate science language mm -hmm. to Muggle language. Ooh. And that I can, and and in so doing, carry the excitement and passion that a scientist has, mm -hmm. and help a person who will share their excitement, um, experience that same level of excitement without needing the same level of understanding. I don't right. understand how a rocket works. I mean, I know the rudiments of it. Yeah, but I can't plot anything. Right, um, but I still get excited about it. Oh, I, yeah. don't, I don't know how to stop deforestation, mm -hmm. but I know that it is incredibly important and a huge challenge that faces our species. And if I can just help be part of whatever it takes to push us as humanity to a critical mass of actually doing something about this, mm -hmm. um, I will feel like I have I've done something really meaningful with what I've been given. Nice. Do you ever get like, we had, um, uh, Chris Hadfield on, uh, who's, you know, an astro. Yeah. I'm just, everybody knows who Chris is. So we, we had him on, but it's one of those things where like, you know, I've read so much about the guy. I've read his books. I, I, you know, I'm a huge space nerd. I love all that kind of shit, but it's funny when you're interviewing these people too, because you don't like, I really don't know what he knows, but I know peripherally because of what he's written and, and just watching him talk all the time too. So it's, did you ever find it like one of those things where like they start to mention something you're like, Oh yeah, because you know, you start to fill in, the words that they already, he like, like let the guy, he knows it. <laughs> like he knows what's going on. Um, not specifically, but in a very similar kind of emotional exchange. Yeah. I have actually met Chris Hadfield. Oh, nice. And he was amazing and really kind and mm. smaller than I expected him to be. And, oh, really? <laughs> and yes. And a, a rock star at the comic con party we were wow. at. and i just introduced myself and i said look you know i'm just an actor but i'm a science enthusiast and he stops me and he says you're not just an actor you're wesley and you're star trek and star trek is part of the reason i'm an astronaut yeah we talked about that and and i have I have heard that from literally every astronaut I have had the privilege of meeting. Wow. I have heard it from literally every uh, uh, person who works in astrophysics or works at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory or is in some way involved with space exploration and, and really advanced technology development. They all tell me, every single person with, without any regard to their age, their gender, uh, their gender identity, like anything at all, they all say, 
yeah, I really loved Star Trek and it kind of inspired me to want to do this particular line of work. Yeah. When I meet somebody who tells me who's around, I'm, I turned 50 in a few months. When I meet somebody who's around my age or a little bit younger than me, right. who tells me, oh yeah, like this just happened on Facebook a couple of days ago. I'm just so unbelievably excited about um, uh, the, uh, the James Webb telescope. And, oh, and, yeah. I'm so excited, and I just, I have loved Kepler since the day it launched. Mm. And one of the mission specialists from Kepler left a comment on my Facebook page. And oh I was like, God. oh my God, you know that I exist. <laughs> you did this unbelievable thing. And, and that person was like, I did it. You know, I cannot tell you how many of us do this because of Star Trek. And it just feels like something that I'm really grateful for. And something that I'm very grateful I am able to feel gratitude for. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, it, if you, if you look to certain parts in the beginning of just a geek, there are times where I absolutely wasn't able to do that. I did not have the ability because of the baggage I was carrying to really love this the way I, I wish I had always been able to. So right. now that I can, um, I'm even more grateful when these moments happen. Nice. I just want to real quick throw in there that you slid in that you were, you were 50. Yes. Uh, Without without acknowledging that you clearly have some kind of Paul Rudd gene pool chemical mix going on, you can't just slide that in here and act like everyone's going to pretend that that's okay. What do you got going on? I try not to think about it too much, to be honest <laughs> with you. Um, I can point to like two things that I that I am reasonably confident are mm. true, and a thing that I suspect may be true. Uh, the first thing is I just don't have any vices. I don't drink. I don't smoke. Um, uh, I have a very healthy diet because my doctor was like, dude, you're turning 50. You need to like really check out your diet. Yeah. Um, and as it turns out that like when you don't put garbage into your body, it tends to reflect that. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, the other thing is like, I'm just a nerd who stays indoors all the time. <laughs> I don't like, I'm not really an outside person who is like ex excessively exposed to sun. So my skin tends to look pretty good. Yeah. Here's another thing that I think though. And I suspect, and I hope that it is true. Paul, speaking of Paul Rudd specifically, mm -hmm. Paul Rudd exudes the kind of kindness, the the this level of kind, gentle enthusiasm mm. that you just want to be around. Yeah. Can you imagine if 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 Paul Rudd were ever your teacher at any oh. point in your academic career? If Paul Rudd were your counselor at mm. any camp, at any point in your life, he's that kind of guy. You want to be around that kind of guy. Yeah. I'm trying so hard to be the person I need in the world. And I do that every day. It's an affirmative choice that I make every day to be the kindest person I can be, the gentlest person I can be, the most empathetic and most compassionate person I can be. And when I encounter other people who kind of live by a same, making the same series of choices, Mm -hmm. We all just tend to look kind of young. And I think it's because hate chews you up inside Ooh. and anger and resentment just comes out in your pores and you can't hide it. And yeah. um, for a long time, I had hate and resentment. That was a result of pain. Mm -hmm. And having done years of very challenging, but very rewarding, healing, cathartic work to address and heal that pain. I have space in my life to make those choices over and over and over again. So I am doing my very best to be like Paul Rudd for me, I guess. Wow. Yeah. And in, and in that effort, sometimes I just happen to be very, very, very lucky. And I'm that person for someone else. 
Yeah. And, and I just think that maybe, maybe we just tend to look a little bit younger because we have a childlike enthusiasm in our lives. That is I also noticed though, here's the thing though. I'm, yeah. I'm the Gen X forum on Reddit is great. It's one of my favorite <laughs> to go. It feels like the bulletin board systems I hung out on in the eighties. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> and this comes up all the time. We talk about it all the time. When we were young, 50 just seemed like so far away. Oh, yeah. And it just seemed like, well, when you were 50, you're done, man. You don't get to play anything. You certainly don't get to have a Tron machine in your house. Oh, my right? God. Like, like <laughs> yeah. you go to work. You come home. You pay bills. It is trudgery. You yell at kids for being kids. Everything sucks. <laughs> yeah. We all talk about how that just... Who, why did we all believe that? I know, yeah. We all believed it. No matter right. where we grew up, no matter who our parents were, we all believed it. And it's just like, no, that's bullshit. Fuck that. Let's go out and play and have fun and like stay young. Why? Yes. Why do we have to just go, well, I guess I'm done. Absolutely, man. And maybe it's just a combination of all those things. I don't know. No, I no. I think about it too much and just say like, thanks. I mean- when I look in the mirror, I see kind of, I see like an old guy looking back at me. <laughs> but I know yeah. that other people don't see me the way I see myself. Yeah, yeah, we're always our own worst critics. It's always it's always new. Like, yeah, I've done the same thing where I've I've gotten up in the morning and I'm like, why do people talk to you? Holy shit! <laughs> like you look you look nuts. But I agree with you, man. And by the way, that's the best answer ever to that question. Huge huge compliment to Paul Russ. But most people would just be like, hashtag blessed. You know what I mean? And you gave this beautiful, you know, expansive answer. And that's the same way I feel, man. I have a closet full of band tees and graphic tees. And, and this, I mean, I love, you know, clearly big fan of flair, yeah. uh, but buttons and shit, you know, whatever like that. Yeah. I'm not going to stop doing that because yeah. I'm supposed to, I had, I had somebody suggest, uh, you know, you know, just politely, I think they were trying to, but they were like, you know, you should, um, I think it would help you on the show if you cut your hair. And people would respect, and I was just like, uh, "No, <laughs> I'm not going to do that at all." And what well, other advice do you have from 1965? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm like, "Oh no, please I don't... tell me what else I should do." Yeah, it was so weird, but I—it's so weird because I think they really think that that's like a, you know, like a thing that benefits you at the end of the day. I'm like, I, I've never been that person. I used to. Maybe I used to get... something kind of fundamentally changed in business and culture, and like maybe our generation just came of age and just kind of decided to reject this yeah. paradigm that's like, no, you have to stop having fun. You have to stop. Being oh yeah. Fun. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure that there are people all over the world throughout history who have just flat out refused to grow up without being <laughs> like your panty, but are just yeah. like, you know, I'm a responsible adult. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I show up in those times, but I also yes. have time for myself and goof off and play. Oh yeah, um, exactly. It's uh, weird to think that like, that's the stigma that like how you dress and how you behave is going to affect whether you can accomplish a goal or drive or, or ring up a, like, even like at, at like a regular job or anything like that. Like if you were like, you know, piercings, tattoos, whatever, I'm like, yeah, they could still ring people up. Like it doesn't stop anybody. It's there the was a, a moment in my life where I thought I should try to like dress nicer. I should try to dress more like an adult, especially mm -hmm. going to like conventions and things, you know, right. like, so I'm going to sort of like, represent myself and my work I should look like an adult and that right. lasted for about a month because <laughs> I felt like I was cosplaying all the time not <laughs> as the character I enjoyed yeah and and someone said to me you're a nerd at a con why are you wearing a tie 
And I was like, that's a great question that I don't have an answer for. I'm going to go back to my room and get my Misfits t-shirt and change. Not beautiful. <laughs> and, nice. and, and I've just kind of embraced that ever since. And I kind of like it. You know, my uniform is jeans, some kind of generally a band t-shirt. And, and uh, when the weather is cool here in Los Angeles, like maybe a, uh, a lightweight kind of like canvas surf, surf jacket, which is just yeah. part of our California culture. We've, I've worn them my entire lives. And every now and then I see another kind of old like me who's in, you know, a Foo Fighters shirt or a Nirvana shirt or a Vandal shirt yeah. or one of those things. And we just kind of give each other that look like, all right, you, yes. you didn't give up either. I know. It's still good. <laughs> I, have a, uh, I have a black flag tattoo on the back of my neck. And every now and then somebody at the grocery store goes, hey, is that a black flag tattoo? <laughs> and I'm like. Yeah, it is. I know black flag tattoos are the live, laugh, love sign of middle-aged <laughs> punk rockers. Um, but like, uh, yes, it is. It absolutely is. And then we have a conversation about like, do you love Damage? Like, do you love, <laughs> you know, like what's your favorite black flag album? You know, yeah, I mean, man. have you seen Rollins? Just stuff like that. It's just uh, fun. It's kind of like, I think that it's this thing that we nerds always did when we were younger, right? If I put like some kind of subtle Star Trek thing on my jacket or a subtle Star Wars thing or something like that, if someone commented on it, I knew I had found a person that I had something in common with. Yes. And, and, and I, and I, I still enjoy that. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's same thing. I mean, it's like, that's why like, I feel like every button I have is a signal to some other nerd out there. One, you're not alone. I'm here too. <laughs> you know. And then it's a conversation starter and it's just great. I think it's, you know, it's, it's a nice little beacon, like, right. Cause we're yeah. all in this and we all feel alone sometimes, I think, you know, no matter where we are, what situation we're in. Uh, so th the other thing I was going to ask you, man, I mean, you were talking about regular jobs and stuff like that too. Was acting, acting wasn't, I know acting wasn't the, the thing you really wanted to go into. Your parents kind of pushed you into it in a way, right? Yes. Acting was never something I wanted to do at all. What was the original passion? Do you remember before, or did you have one? I was seven when my okay. mother coached me when my, so my mom was like, you're going to go into the agency where I, where I'm represented. My mom was a barely successful uh commercial actress in okay. the 70s she had 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 managed to kind of like hit the lottery with a couple of big national commercials at a time when that meant something mm -hmm. um but by the time it was like 79 80 um uh what she did wasn't really working in advertising anymore okay. so she told me you're going to go to the agency and you're going to tell the agent, I want to do what mommy does. And she's going to have you read some lines and we're going to mm. practice that. And she practiced it with me. And then you're going to go do it. None of it was my idea. This was a thing that my mom made me do. Wow. And I did everything I was told to do. I started going on auditions. I booked jobs right away. Um, by the time I was probably eight, maybe nine, mm -hmm. I had realized I don't like any of this. Right. I want to go to school and go home. I wasn't getting to play with my friends. I was spending every afternoon, all of it, in the car at an audition and then back in the car again wow. to go home. Uh, I had to do my homework in the car. I uh, had to eat my dinners in the car. Um, I 
didn't get to experience the things a kid makes because my mom had decided that it was so important to her that I was a famous actor because she couldn't do it on her own, that it was entirely acceptable for me to make the sacrifices that she was willing to make as a 30-year-old woman when I was a seven-year-old child. So when people ask me, what was your dream? What did you want to do? Like, what? I don't know. I wow. never got to find out. Mm-hmm. I never got to go into that room where you make decisions, where the room is pristine and every option is in front of me. I entered that room through a pathway that was built on all of this acting stuff that I never wanted to do, that I happened to be good at. Um, And by the time I went into the room through that door, well, it turns out there's only a certain number of options available when you're coming in through that particular door. And I'm grateful that I was able to find my way to something that I genuinely love that mm-hmm. I, that I, that I look forward to every day. I, I love being a writer. I, as I said to you earlier, I love communicating to the best of my ability, complex ideas to people. Um, I love being the host of the ready room. I, I cherish being part of the Star Trek legacy. Um, I have an amazing life right now and I've worked very, very, very hard to, to, build what I have, but I will never know what I would have done if I had been supported from the beginning instead of groomed and used and abandoned like I was. Right. What was the, I mean, so when that was going on though, how do you you remember like a process or how long it took for you to kind of reconcile maybe the childhood you lost to going, all right, look, this is what I've been uh, what was been placed in my lap and now I have to build from here? Like, do, do you remember a, a point in time where you were like, okay, I'm going to try to work through it? When I was uh, 25-ish, um, I started uh, writing about things um, mm-hmm. just privately. And when... I discovered that blogs were a thing in 1999, 2000, somewhere around there. I saw an opportunity. Hmm. The opportunity was that I could finally speak with my voice to the public Mm -hmm. truthfully about what, what my story was. Because at that moment, I was essentially known in the public and I only existed within my family as the kid from stand by me, the kid who used to be on Star Trek. I had no other identity. Right. Um, uh, I write about it in the book. The man who was my father was an abusive piece of shit who never cared about me and went out of his way to make sure I knew it. My mother just used me and never heard me, never saw me. I was eight or nine when I started saying, and I remember this so clearly, I just want to be a kid. Please let me just be a kid. I don't know why you're making me work. Right. So when I was in my early 20s and started my blog, I saw that I could actually tell my story. I could tell the truth. I could talk about how awful auditions were. I could talk about how much it hurt when people were so cruel to me um, and how personally I took it. And in that process, I started to discover that being a storyteller, because I was just telling stories. They were my stories, but I was still telling stories. Mm -hmm. Being a storyteller really felt good to me. It felt right. It felt um, uh, uh, validating and um, satisfying. Yeah. And and also I felt like 
I was talking about, you know, you get to go into the room, but when you come in through this particular door, there are only a certain number of choices you can make. One of those choices was take the experience I have as an actor, as someone who breaks down scripts and learns about a story narrative to properly interpret it as a performer, take all of that experience and all of that information that's in my head and apply it to telling a story right. rather than performing someone else's story. And since then, it started me on the path toward discovering me, towards like finding who, who I was. Mm -hmm. And then the next real big thing, when I was probably around 33, 34, 35, somewhere in that area, the disconnect between the lie my mom told me about my life and mm -hmm. my experience in my life just got too hard to deal with. It became too painful. And I started just burying it in alcohol abuse. Oof. It was just so much easier to engage in what was essentially an act of self-harm. Right. Um, and, and also an escape. Um, and kind of like just a defiant uh, 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 act of self-loathing. Mm -hmm. And when I was about 45, 46, uh, it was when I was 46, uh, when I was 45, I was like, this can't, this is unsustainable. And it took me a year. And when I was 46, I chose to quit drinking. Wow. And, and uh, it was a challenge, the best thing I've ever done. <laughs> that made it possible for me to confront the reality of all the pain that I had and start the therapy and start the work and start the healing. And I don't believe it is coincidental that it was right around that time, which would have been January of 2019, that what I'm calling my modern career mm -hmm. really took off. Wow. I had had a terrific interim career with Eureka and Leverage. And then the Big Bang Theory actually overlaps uh, 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 drinking will and not drinking will. Right. But I had this, like this, this long period there where it was kind of the interim career. And when that happened, I was able to let go of two things. One, the man who was my father is an implacable bully mm. and nothing I ever do or ever did was ever going to be good enough for him to love me. It was a choice he made. It didn't matter. It had nothing to do with me. I could let go of trying to earn approval and affection from someone who was never going to give it. Right. And I also didn't have to chase mom's dream anymore because mm -hmm. mom's an adult and mom's responsible for her own happiness. And it was really wrong of her to put that on my shoulders and put it in my hands. Uh, it was unreasonable. It was hurtful. And then to gaslight me about it my whole life just kind of revealed the selfishness behind it. And once I was able to let go of that and mm -hmm. stop facing that kind of thing, the stuff that was sincerely and genuinely important to me was able to take center focus of my entire life. And I was able to build the life that I have now wow. in a real weird way. I feel like I existed until I was about 46 wow. and I've been living since then. That's incredible. What was, I mean, so you know, because you, you had been involved in so much stuff, so many movies, and you're, and you're part of that group of childhood actors, you know what I mean? That's just, um, that's a tight-knit group, that's a community that you guys can all, I feel like, relate to each other. Did you, were you able to talk about that kind of stuff? Like, even like, you know, as far as your Stand By Me cast, I mean, th th that group of kids, that was a unique period in time. Yeah. And it, it almost is like you all went through something deeply personal in yes. your lives as actors. Yeah. Were you... um 
maybe emotionally connected enough to to those people or to those people to you know to be like hey look i'm kind of going through a thing or were you just like job acting i'm gonna try and enjoy this and and kind of get through it we were all so young when stand by me happened mm -hmm. i wasn't aware of anything that was going on in me okay. i i did not i was not yet fully aware of just how much contempt the man who was my father had for me right i I really believed, and I was encouraged by my mother to believe that it was somehow my fault, and that if I just was better, which was never defined, right. uh, I would somehow solve the puzzle and everything would be great. Mm -hmm. And I thought that part of solving that puzzle was being the best actor I could be. And it was really important to me to show up when we were doing Stand By Me and, and do the best work that I could do. Mm -hmm. I felt extremely supported by Rob Reiner. I nice. felt extremely supported by uh, by River Phoenix. I felt extremely supported by Ray Gideon and Bruce Evans who wrote the script. Hmm. Um, I wasn't close to Corey. I don't have any bad feelings toward him, but he was going through a lot. He's got his own pain that he's dealing with in his own journey. And I sincerely hope that he finds peace in his hmm. life because it has eluded him as far as I can tell all right. of it. And Jerry was 11. I just recently saw Jerry. The episode hasn't aired yet, but I was went on his show, The Talk, to oh. talk about this book. Mm. And he said, like in the middle of it, this wasn't planned. He just kind of stopped everything. And he was like, you know, I read a while ago about how abused you were and how it affected your performance in Stand By Me. Because I had given an interview where someone was like, how did you give such a good performance? And I said, I think Rob just cast kids who were those characters. Yeah. If you look at every role I've ever played in my life that has had any kind of lasting impact or any kind of meaning to the audience, those roles are all boys who don't have a father for one reason or another. Right. That was a huge thing missing in my life, but particularly as it relates to Stand By Me, you've got one parent who is demonstrably contemptuous towards the kid. You've got another parent who's just not involved at all. Mm. Um, and I could like really, re and a golden child. Right. Right. Brothers, my younger brother's the golden child in my house. Like all of that was really familiar to me, but I wasn't totally aware of it. So Jerry was like, I'm sorry that I wasn't there for you. And I just said, dude, you were 11. Like, what do yeah. you, you know? And like, and one of the things we who are survivors of any kind of physical or emotional abuse do that's extraordinary is how well we hide it. Mm. We hide it because we are taught by our abusers that it is our shame, not theirs, that we're abused. We are right. taught that it is our weakness, not theirs, that that makes them do the terrible thing to us. And we have to unlearn all of that. And mm. when I was a kid, I fully believed all of it because I just didn't know any better. Right. As I got older and as I came to terms with, with the reality of my life, I realized how loving and supportive and present my Star Trek cast was for me when I was a teenager. Mm. And this is heavily covered in Still Just a, in, in Just a Geek and then expanded on in the annotations that make it Still Just a Geek. Right. I spent a lot of time when I was in my early 20s and early 30s, uh, from my early 20s until my mid 30s, feeling like I had massively fucked up. I had turned my back on the only family I ever had. I had like lost any chance that I ever had of being part of this group of people who mean so much to me. And I was wrong about all of it. All of that only existed in my head. They never didn't love me. They never thought I was a pain in the ass. They mm -hmm. never had, they never felt about me the way I just presumed every adult felt about me because I knew how my dad felt about me. Right. Um, and they were always there for me. And I got to have 
moments with each of them over the span of about a year where we got to quietly just sit together and I got to tell them how much they meant to me and how much they mean to me now. And more than once in the last couple of years when something really, really cool has happened in my life, the kind of really cool thing where you'd want to get on the phone to mom and dad and be like, guess what? <laughs> I've texted my Trek family. Uh, and I've just said, I really hope that you will be my mom and dad for a minute so I can tell you about a cool thing. And when that, when I have wanted that, they all show up for me. They're all present for me. Wow. And it, and it, and it really means, it really, really means a lot to me. I did have a massive PTSD flashback years ago. I wrote about it uh, on my blog that was related to being a child actor where I saw a, a kid that I knew in a movie and this kid had been presented by my mom as like having a really abusive mom who was like forcing him to be there. And this woman was a nightmare. Like everyone saw what, what a beast this kid's mom was. Right. And it was, if it was obvious to me at eight years old, it was clearly obvious <laughs> to adults who should have known better and should have done something. Right. And when I saw this kid in a movie, I had this like time collapsed and I had this realization that this kid and I were exactly the same. Mm. The difference was my mom lied about it and gaslighted me about it. And I believed the lies and I bet he did too. Right. And it caught, and it caused all of these memories that I had really buried to all come back to me. Mm. And I got on the phone, which I very rarely do. Cause when your phone rings now, you think someone's died uh, or, or <laughs> it's either someone died or your car's extended warranty. Is I got on the phone to a friend of mine who I've known since we were kids, uh, who was also a child actor, only he wanted it. And it was his dream from as long as he could remember. And he was very supported by his parents. Um, and I was like, I don't know what to do. I need somebody to talk to. And he sat there and listened to me cry and listened to me be afraid and listened to me hurt and shared memories of being a kid and made me feel less alone wow. a huge component of the existential pain in my life and a big component of i think contributions to my mental illness which is anxiety depression and ptsd um is that i had all these experiences that were that were really not great mm. and the people it was natural to turn to, my parents, mm. not only caused a lot of that, but then gaslighted me about it. Yeah. So I start to feel like crazy and I start to feel really alone. And there is some tremendous comfort in hearing from other people whose experiences are similar to mine. It's awful. Like we see each other, you know, we share a look like, fuck man, I'm so sorry. But like, I'm really glad you exist because you're existing and I'm existing and we got through it. And like, we're not alone. And those kids that we were are gonna be okay. Yeah. And there's just this incredible feeling of like, thank God I'm not the only one. When someone tells me I read about your story and I saw myself in it, um, in a really selfish way, it's super cathartic and, and very healing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I would never wish the kind of pain I have lived with on another person ever. Right. Um, but knowing that someone like, look, you went through it. I went through it. Um, we made it, you mm -hmm. know, um, uh, there, 
the sort of like secret handshake. Here's a secret handshake that night that both of us wish we didn't know. But like, <laughs> but like you know what? We're going to do it, man. That's a great way to describe it. My uh, one of my best friends, my roommate, I lived with him for, you know, uh, years, but we had, you know, we were in our early mid 20s, most of our 20s, I think, uh, you know, was living together. And uh, but we had developed this thing where we were basically like we both suffered from depression in different ways all our lives. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, we had some very formative years living together where we were like, look, we're going to we're not going to do the typical guy thing where we don't talk about shit. And we just communicated about everything because we awesome. we were oh it was so it was so great and so kind of eye-opening and kind of transformed i think the way the both of us talk to people outside of our lives too yeah because you know when when you're with somebody every day and you're kind of learning how to do that as you go you, you just kind of bring it to other people which which is really funny to me because it throws your other friends and other people off who are totally not used to it Especially, I feel like when it does come from a guy, like when it, when it, when, it, when it, you don't expect a dude to share his feelings with you, but when you go up to other friends and you're like, "Hey, is everything okay?" Their first impression is like, "Okay, what the fuck is wrong with you?" Uh, Dude, I think the thing that I, this is really important. We as men, we have to normalize this. Yeah, Dude, it's super cool to be emotional. Yeah, it's super fine to be open and honest and, and emotionally vulnerable. Right, with other men, mm -hmm. like you're not. It's not this thing that we have been taught about weakness in men. What we've actually been taught is toxic masculinity. Yeah. And, and when, when we as men learn what toxic masculinity is, we can identify it. We can find mm. the ways we unconsciously participate in it and we can make changes. Yeah. We absolutely have to end toxic masculinity. And the only way we do that is by being the change we wish to see in the world. So dudes, it's super cool to talk about your feelings. It doesn't make you weak. It right. doesn't make you soft. It doesn't make you a failure. Everybody has feelings. Yeah. Everybody struggles with things. Everybody's going through something and you never know what another person is going through ever. Right. I promise you, whatever you are feeling, I don't, it does not matter what it is. Yeah. Whatever you are feeling that feels like it only belongs to you and no one has ever experienced it before. I promise you, you're not alone. Yeah. I promise you. And that's you're the greatest not. feeling ever is when you can literally like now at this point, like, you know, we'll literally text each other and be like, man, are you having a fucking weird day? Cause I'm having this thing going. And then to have somebody else just text you back and go, yeah, no, I'm going through shit too. And you're like, all right, that's all I needed to hear. It's not just me. I'm not going crazy. And, and to the point where like, we would figure out like if one of us is having a day, we both knew what to do for the other. That's the benefit of communication, especially with close friends and family or whatever is when you know that somebody else is going, having a day. And you know, all right, look, I'm going to do this, this, and this. If they need to be alone for a bit, that's great. But I'm going to leave the option to get out of it on the table. And then, you know, and then you can kind of help each other out of it that way. And it's it's just endlessly amazing to feel like you know how to communicate with somebody else and and be open and honest. It um, it seems to be kind of endemic to uh, the Zoomers. Zoomers yeah. seem to be real good at communication. It's just, I mean, I don't, my kids are 30. My kids are millennials, so... I don't really mm. interact with Zoomers very often, but when I do, I tend to experience a young person who really knows what they feel yeah. and really knows why and will not let you invalidate that feeling. Yeah. And I'm real I'm here for it. It's amazing. It's kind of I'm kind of envious of it at at, at such a at such a young age because yeah, I'm like, yeah. oh man, if we had yeah. done that when we were kids, holy shit. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's great. I'd like to think that 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 the the generation behind us uh, is benefiting from our generation being raised by a generation that didn't know how to express emotion. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and that is hopefully breaking some generational trauma. I did it in my family and I know other parents are doing it in their own families. Yeah, absolutely. It's good. To, it's good to know that we're moving in somewhat of a, a right direction. Um, you know, what's cool too. You mentioned your, your Star Trek family and, mm -hmm. and them being like the kind of mom and dad thing. I think that must be super great for people who are Star Trek fans to hear because I feel like that show for a lot of people, again, may have been their extended family. You know how people connect with TV and shows like that. But to hear that they were that way to you in person must be like, oh, my God, these people are everything I thought they were. And, more, you know. Yeah, Next Generation, I think at – I don't know if I would say that like at its core it's about family. But family is one of the atoms that make up the core of yeah. Star Trek. Um, and uh, years ago when I was – I, I think I was either in my late teens or early 20s. I asked Frakes if my memory was wrong or if we really did love each other. Because <laughs> it felt like that all the time. You know, yeah. I was a kid, I could have been insulated from things, right? Sure. Like um, there are there were things that happened, uh, big things that happened that I never knew anything about because I was a kid that they didn't tell me about until I was an adult. Right. Um, but in this particular thing, I said, so like, is it real the way I remember it? We all loved each other. Uh, and and we all respected each other and nobody was a pain in the ass. There were no divas on the set. We were all kind of like part of a family. Is that right? Mm -hmm. And he says to me, W, it was lightning in a bottle. That is exactly how it was. Wow. I have directed every other Star Trek show that came after us. And they all talk about how they want to be like us, wow. how they hope to find the family that we find. Now, in this part of my life as the host of The Ready Room, I've had the extraordinary privilege of talking to the, the actors on Star Trek Discovery for three seasons now, and the, star, the cast of Star Trek for two seasons, and now I'm getting to talk to the cast of Star Trek Strange New Worlds. And they, <laughs> they all talk about how they have worked to form a family unit among their cast members. Wow. Because they know from our example how meaningful that is and how valuable and rare it is to have that and what a gift it is to have that for the rest of your life. And that, God, it makes me so happy. <laughs> as, a, as a kid, were you able to, cause my, my, um, my roommate, again, the same guy got me into Star Trek. Yeah. Cause I, I initially I'll, I'll say it. I was not, I didn't, I didn't watch it. I don't know why I was like, well, I'm a super nerd, but for some reason I didn't cross that, that barrier. But then That's he was like, everybody, it's fine. It was one of the, no, but it was one of those things that like, I just, I don't know, I guess I, I just never, never watched it on my own. But uh, he was like, how have you never watched, like, what, what the hell? And he's like a huge Star Trek fan. Yeah. Started watching it. We must have burned through like every next gen, me, him, and, and, our, and his, um, another friend of ours, Tori. I yeah. mean, especially over the pandemic, man, that yeah. was like just relief, just pure yeah, goodness sure. with everything yeah. going on with the president we had. You know, yeah. all that other shit going on, man. It was just nice to have it. When you were when you were on those sets, though, and you were, you know, involved in those scripts, did the uh, lessons of that show kind of wash over you? Were you able to understand, like, holy shit, there's so much deeper meaning to that kind of stuff? Never as it related to my stories. Okay. As it related to other stories, yeah, absolutely. Nice. Um, and, and uh, you know, when a story was about something bigger than what it appeared to be about on the surface. I, I tended to get that because I was already a, a science fiction fan. I was already a Star Trek fan. I am a Twilight Zone marathon kid. Yes. Like, you know, I'm just like- Every New I, Year's. I, I, yeah, I grew <laughs> up um, uh, just constantly exposed 
to um, uh, allegory and multi-layered storytelling. So I was always looking out for that. Right. I have since watched episodes that I am in. Uh, as an adult, I've watched episodes that I was a kid in. And there are moments I see where I feel like there were times in my 20s and 30s where I watched these shows and feel like you really missed it, man. You missed that beat in the performance. But when I watch it as an almost 50 year old, I see, oh, you know what? I'm thinking specifically of this episode where Wesley's father has made a hologram for him. And he's like, uh, Wesley, you're a baby. And I don't know what's coming on, what, what your future is, but I really want you to see this. And Wesley's just looking at him. Mm -hmm. And I remember watching that thinking, I wish I had like been more into like really seeing him in three dimensions and, and feeling the loss of him in my life and feeling like, I hope he's proud of me and feeling all of those things. And like, I feel like I didn't really get there in the performance and, and I kind of beat myself up about it. And I rewatched it recently and I realized a couple of things. Wesley Crusher takes 3D holograms for granted the way I take a snapshot for granted. So it's not like, wow, there's my dad. You know what I mean? Like, it would be like, oh, I never met my grandpa. Well, here's a picture of him. Oh my God. Like, it's not like that. Right. Oh, nice. Right. So it's kind of like that. Right. Also, Wesley's like 16 or 17 when that happens. He's not emotionally sure. developed enough to experience the things that I would experience if I saw that sort of thing now. Right. And in retrospect, that moment actually is captured really well. He's a kid who's overwhelmed by the moment, and that's entirely appropriate. Yeah. And, and I wasn't aware of it at the time. Uh, wow. And I beat myself up about it for years. Like, I really blew that. I really Wow. Um, there were, there were behind-the-scenes times that were extremely important to me, that were, that, that were consequential in my development as an actor and as a human, and those were inevitably the times that Patrick and I worked together in scenes that of just the two of us. Mm -hmm. I think my best work on Star Trek, the next generation is in the cave when I'm telling him, I'm not going to let you die. Yes. I think, it, I think it's the realist. I think it's the most vulnerable. I, I think it is the least self-conscious performance because Wesley's whole thing is like, you're so important to me and I want you to be proud of me and I'm not going to fuck this up. Like, mm -hmm. I know how much you mean to everyone. Will the actor knew the same thing about Patrick, the person. And I just leaned into those feelings. Nice. Um, uh, and, and, uh, and in that case, I was really glad to appreciate it. When I read scripts now, I see them in a way that I didn't when I was younger. And I think that is just because I have a lot of hours in this particular level of the game. Right. How are you able to, I mean, you know, because you were forced into acting and you, and you kind of had to reconcile your child and stuff like that. How yeah. did you keep from resenting what you did though? Is it just, is I it, is it, it all the time? I resented all you did. Time. I hated all of it. There were, so I was happy when I was on the set. Sure. Because I liked, I, I, I did enjoy the work. I okay. enjoyed make believe. I enjoyed using my imagination. I enjoyed performing. I enjoyed feeling good at something mm. because I was told, Everything I did at home, all the things that I cared about, they were stupid. I was bad at them. They weren't worth paying attention to. It was a waste of my time. Wow. Why aren't you focused on acting? All of that stuff. Mm -hmm. So when I was on the set and I was doing those things, it felt good. And I was good at it. And I liked feeling accomplished and competent. And there is a thing that all artists experience when we do a thing and feel like, hey, that came out kind of the way that I wanted it to. And it feels great. I loved all of that. Right. I deeply resented auditions. I <laughs> deeply resented publicity. I despised um, 
so much, and I still loathe so much of the be bad behavior that is taken for granted, normalized, accepted, and encouraged in the entertainment industry. Mm. It disgusts me. Um, and it's a lot of stuff that I don't want to be part of at all. And, right. and, and, and because of that, I probably limited myself career-wise because I would not participate in things that were awful. Mm. Um, uh, but I have no regrets. Nice. I'm very, very happy with my life where it is, where it is right now. And... I do not re I do not resent it at all. Right. I'm doing a hundred percent of it on my terms. I was talking to my sister. Um, my sister and I are extremely close. I have no contact with the rest of my family of origin. Mm -hmm. And my sister and I were talking and she said, how is everything going with publicity? I remember when we were younger, how hard that was for you. And, and I said, you know, it's great. I'm loving it because this is about telling my story. Yeah. And it's about just all I want to do is let people who may be interested in this know that it exists. I'm not trying to sell it to people. I'm not promoting myself to people. All I want to do is let people who might be interested in this story know that it exists so they have the opportunity. And it's all on my terms. I'm talking to people who want to talk to me rather than someone who's just been pitched to like bring the flavor of the month into their show as part of that endless, meaningless PR cycle where you read the questions <laughs> that you aren't even thinking about. You do not listen to the answers. And when it's over, you go on to the next guest. I did that all through my teens and twenties. And right. I, didn't, I didn't like it at all. Yeah, now right. I, and, and because I felt like, I felt like, I was my mom's thing. I was her toy that was being pushed around and posed and, and, and forced to perform. And now it's all me, all on my terms. I want this. Yeah. And, and I really love all of it. And when it's when all of this that I'm doing is done in three to four weeks, I go right back to my regular life, playing <laughs> video games, hosting Ready Room, working on the next book, walking awesome. my dog. And hopefully people enjoy this and have found something out of my story that that adds some value to their life that makes the time worthwhile. Yeah. If if none of that en en ends up happening, um, I'm really okay with it. I, I really have just completely accepted nice. that, uh, that that part of it is out of my hands. I am able to do that because that bigger thing hanging over me, which is maybe this is the thing that makes dad like me. Right. Maybe this is the thing that finally fills the black hole in of mom's neediness. Mm. Um, maybe this is the thing that gets my brother to stop bullying me all the time. Right. Um, all of that is gone. Right. This is now a thing that I wanted to do that's really fun that I'm really grateful for. Yeah. And and I got to tell you, this enjoying the process is massively preferable <laughs> to resenting it or enduring it. <laughs> yeah, you can tell, man. You can tell you're really enjoying yourself and stuff. I, I've, I have to ask you because you're the first guest that we've had on that I've had a lot of comedians on, comedian friends on, and, uh -huh. and people who have worked, you know, worked with Robin Williams as adults. Yeah. I've never got to speak to anybody who worked with him as a kid. And I, yeah. and I've, you know, you've read stuff and stuff like that. What was that experience like? I mean, was he, oh you know, God. he was great. Yeah. He's just larger than life. Right. I mean, right. He's one of those larger than life people. And I had heard so many things about how cool and wonderful he was. And I had heard so many things about how he was not just a gamer, but he was my kind of gamer. Mm -hmm. And, and he uh, was generous and, 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 effortlessly funny and and wanted to just play on the set and that when we did flubber i should be prepared for him to d 
do the scene as written until mm. the director's like, cool, we got it. At which point we're now going to spend three times much time in film goofing off, trying jokes, playing within the boundaries of the scene. And at that time in my life, I was doing improv shows three times a week. I was in that space, man. Nice. Like, I was like ready for it. I was primed for it. And uh, Robin Williams just effectively played catch with me. Uh, like the whole time. He was, awesome. he was an absolute delight. Wow. He was so kind and so gentle and, and, and such a, a loving presence on that set. Um, I, I really loved every second of, of that entire experience from the very first audition all the way to going to the premiere in New York, and <laughs> walking a red carpet and, and all that stuff and getting to go to the performing heights, uh, performing arts high school from fame. Like <laughs> I got to do all of that. Like it was great. And all of it was just like, well, this doesn't feel real. Right. Um, and yet part of me remained disappointed because Flubber didn't blow up the career the way I know my mom wanted it to. Oh, wow. I have yeah, since let go of that baggage, but at right. the time I enjoyed all of that stuff, but I still felt like a failure. Oh my God. Wow. I see no one would ever even know that because it was to, to, I mean, I think to every kid and to anybody around that time who remembers it, it was huge to us. That was like one of the best, you know, that was uh, hilarious, but I didn't, you it know. It was really fun and cool to do a thing that my kids liked. Yes. Um, uh, my nephew is 10 and he loves Star Trek Prodigy. Oh, nice. So uh, when I get to talk to people from Star Trek Prodigy for Ready Room, mm -hmm. I tell them how much Shane loves it and how, how much he is, he is into it. And they're always just so excited to know that someone that is kind of in their target demo is into the show. Right. And I, you can talk to anyone who is a dad or an uncle or an aunt or a mom or whatever, anyone who is a performer who has a child in their life wants to do something that kid's going to think is cool. Yeah. It doesn't matter what it is. That dumb toy that I could not care less about. There's a movie about it. Terrific. Sign me up. My nephew's going to think it's cool. <laughs> like, I mean, it's just like that. I know that yeah. that happens. Yep. Um, uh, is that why you're doing the voiceover stuff? No, man. The voiceover stuff is actually something I had always wanted. I was going to say, is that for you? I, I, had a, I had a feeling it had to be more for you than anything else because it's got to be so yeah. fucking cool to be able to do that. Yeah. The story of my voice acting career is short and I owe 100% of it to an amazing director named Andrea Romano. Mm -hmm. Andrea uh, is legendary for directing Batman, uh, the animated series. The best. Um, uh, and, and, and every Warner Brothers animated show that that you love from the 90s and the 2000s like that's just those were all her shows right. she brought me in to guest star on a show called the zeta project with Diedrich vader um Ooh. and uh i was so excited and i was so nervous i didn't have a lot of experience as a voice actor um so i studied it as best as i could before i went in to do that i kind of looked up things online and like this is before youtube so I, there was i couldn't go to somebody who was a voice actor expert and talk to them. I, I called some acting coaches I knew and I was just like, I don't want to mess this up because if I do well, maybe I'll get to come back and do this again. Oh my God. Um, I, I did a, a, a good enough job for her to bring me back for a different show nice. uh, called uh, The Legion of Superheroes right. um, to play the character Cosmic Boy. Mm. And then she brought me back over and over and over again for Legion of Superheroes. I did a ton of episodes of Legion yeah. of Superheroes where I ended up meeting Yuri Lowenthal, who's become one of my closest friends. Oh, nice. Then she brought me into Teen Titans. Mm. And I got to do Teen Titans a bunch. And that 
dropped me into the Warner Brothers world. And all of a sudden, other Warner casting people started bringing me in for Brave and the Bold and for Teen Titans Go. And I guess they talked to each other because I got a, an offer for an audio book based on that narration work. And I was like, oh yeah, this is really in my wheelhouse because I love to right. read. I love to tell stories. I do the voices. I I, I do the the changes and like I do all that stuff. I My kids were like, it's bedtime story time. Like they were so <laughs> for it, you know? Like, like I love doing that. Yeah. And and that gave me the, the, the privilege to try one of those. Mm-hmm. And I ended up just being asked to do that over and over and over again. And sometime around that moment, people in the game industry started talking about it. And I got to work on a bunch of Grand Theft Auto games and I got to work on a bunch of Rainbow Six games. And and just, you know, it all started because Andrea Romano was like, I just want to take a chance on you. There's something about you that I think might be able to develop into something more and i owe a hundred percent of my voice acting career to her i will i will be grateful for to her until the day i die for that because because i absolutely love it being an audiobook narrator is such a sweet gig i'm crazy about it yeah Um, well ready player one man i i have listened to that and that was a thrill because it was like it was so cool to have somebody you know read it who also you know is a is a diehard nerd I had to keep stopping when I was reading it. <laughs> I would stop and I would like look up through the glass of the director and be like, do you want to know more about this thing? <laughs> like, like, through the whole book. And he was like, uh, do you need a pronunciation on the Lich King? And I was like, a Sarawak who I've been fighting since I was 11? No, I do not. Oh my God. That <laughs> so is fucking I, like, amazing. And then I, like, I have, I have met so many people over the years who were like, dude, Ready Player One's one of my favorite things ever. I was bummed out. The movie adaptation wasn't what I wanted it to be. So your narration is kind of the canonical Ready Player One in my head. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. That is. Yeah. Oh, oh, please don't tell Steven Spielberg that. But... <laughs> or, or Ready Basically, Player Two, tell it. Steven That's Spielberg. Crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I have to do the same. So, uh, you know, I'll go on serious radio every now and then. And, and, um, I'm on, I'm with John Fugel saying show. I don't know if you know, John, but he's a, a great, I, of course. Yeah. Okay. So great guy. We, you know, we're doing shows and stuff together, but you know, I'll go on uh, his show, like, you know, once every other week yeah. and any, he knows now, anytime he mentions or references a Marvel thing, yeah, he's got to do it quick and move on or I'll be like, let me explain <laughs> something to you real quick. So here, and you know, and we're talking about like politics, the, real world issues. The original Moon Knight universe. Yeah, oh, I know, I know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, actually the costume, what they That's did- That's right, you know, an homage to Captain America Super Special number 12 that came out, in, <laughs> I mean, like it's, yeah. He did it. He did it the other day. We were doing something, and he said something about uh, the Miss Marvel show coming out, uh, the the new Captain Marvel show coming out. Yeah. And I was like, "Well, hold on, because it's not her original powers." Because honestly, I think they're saving that for Reed Richard. And he was just like, "We we have to move on." And I'm like, "No, no, no, wait." Yeah. <laughs> like this is what you're describing is what I absolutely love about being a nerd. And hmm. uh, for the longest time, you or I would do something like that, and some like cool kid nearby would be like, "Nerd." And, yeah. And the thing is, like. All we are doing is being enthusiastic about a thing that we genuinely love, right? Exactly. That is what being a nerd is all about. There is someone who cannot go onto a radio show to talk to the host because the host says, yes, and this week the Jets covered the spread. And that guy is going to go off about yes. this. Yes. 
right? He is just, he cannot wait because let me tell you, he's been doing some homework. And yeah. he's like, and he's just like, he just watched some old ESPN video, right? He watched some wild world of sports stuff and he's got something so cool to tell you about, right? Yes. Their nerdery is just as valid and just as awesome as our nerdery for comic book stuff. Absolutely. And it always has been. We have always been the same people. This yep. idea that jocks and nerds are not the same is, is wrong. The difference is toxic males and non-toxic males are different. Yeah. And it's where they land. There's toxic males in both communities. It's just who are we gonna listen to? Like right. who are we gonna allow, who are we going to allow to represent the community? Yes. Is it gonna be the toxic males or is it gonna be the fun, enthusiastic people who are as excited for you to love your thing as they are to love their thing? Exactly. And they cosplay way more than we fucking do. If you were in a jersey, really yeah. If every I mean, time I see a person at Comic Con and I'm like, "Fuck, man, it is hot as shit in San Diego. I can't believe you're in full stormtrooper armor." I think about the person who's like painted green, wearing a diaper in January in Lambeau Field, and I'm like, "That guy's hardcore." Exactly. Like, like exactly. you know, that guy really is. And to be honest, armor. we're fr we don't riot when Iron Man died. We didn't burn down a fucking city. <laughs> you know what I mean? We were just like, you know, we wept. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if there was a nerd riot on par with a championship? <laughs> <laughs> it would just be a bunch of five thirty eighters just like clearing the streets so they could march in formation. You know, just like check it out. This is gonna be so great. It'd be a whole bunch of like Darth Vader's like force choking each other. You know, like that's just that's all it's gonna be. It's a whole, a huge group of D&D &D nerds just throwing <laughs> dice. Throwing right? dice. You know, like the crowds, the cops are like, please disperse. Hang on, I'll tell you if I disperse. Oh, no, I made mistake. I'm not dispersing. Like, looting, looting with a bag of holding, just like everything in one bag. Absolutely. A bunch of people as rogues running to the front of the line. Excuse me, looting is one of my class abilities. I get to go first. A nerd riot would be amazing. And then when it was over, we'd clean it all up and apologize. Because <laughs> if you know that is what we would do. Oh, my God. Can we please write this? Why are we not doing this movie? <laughs> also, because we're nerds, there would be a huge orderly line to get into the riot. <laughs> a massive, incredibly organized line, just organized by the people who are in it, that goes a couple of blocks down. In oh the my middle God. of your riot, you'd make sure that your fellow rioters are properly hydrated. They would they would know we were coming because all the hotels would be taken up a month in advance. Like, why are they yeah. why is the Marriott booked? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that nerd riot. That's hilarious. Oh man, that's fucking great. That got me. Um, I have to I have to ask you about uh my, my friend Kelly Lockheed uh, was like, you have to ask him why won't he bring back tabletop? And that is something, I mean, I loved it when it was on too. They are, uh, I love you know, it too. oh yeah, it was great. Are you going to bring it back? And why won't you if you're not? I'm not. <laughs> um, and I'm really sorry. Uh, there is a, as sad as a person is who just heard this for the first time. Um, I, I respect your sadness and I validate it. Um, and it's not a contest. Um, <laughs> but I have a level of sadness in this as the creator of the show mm -hmm. that really can only be properly shared by Felicia Day. The reality is we worked very, very hard to make a very special show that we are incredibly proud of and incredibly grateful for. Mm -hmm. And when legendary bot geek and sundry, they installed a person who just ran it to the ground and sold it off for parts uh. and they destroyed it. Um, the people who are in charge there are 
despicable and I don't want to have anything to do with them. Wow. Um, uh, they were, they were dishonest and dishonorable and I won't work with them anymore. So tabletop as it has existed is over. Um, I, I am, I hate that. It is a giant bummer, but I'm so proud of it. I am so grateful for it. And I am so thrilled that there are other YouTubers who have picked up where we left off to carry the gaming uh, world forward. Um, My goal with tabletop was just to put more gamers in the world. I wanted to show uh, non-gamers through the example of my friends and I playing games that gaming was this incredibly fun hobby that allowed non-competitive competition and collaborative storytelling and uh, uh, community building. Mm. And, uh, and that it was this incredible hobby that was maybe flying under the radar because uh, when we started Tabletop, there were kind of like in the public's consciousness, there were two kinds of board games. There was Monopoly and there was like Twilight Imperium and there was nothing in between. And we wanted to show that there are thousands of titles for every type of person, for every type of skill level, for every type of gamer. And I think we succeeded in that. And I'm really, really proud of it. Um, I I have thought more than once about finding a way to do something similar yet legally distinctly different from tabletop. And uh, I don't have time. I actually have, I just have so much going on right now that I am overjoyed about that. Like the enthusiasm is so great that I'm worried that I'm going to be Lenny with the rabbit and I'm just going to pet it until it dies. (laughs) And um, uh, I, I don't feel that way about tabletop. I, I, I love it. I care deeply about it, but it doesn't have the urgency of completion that this thing I'm working on has. So that's kind of where my head is right now. But I do want to say to everyone who supported us, to everyone who backed us when we crowdfunded, to everyone who, uh, for one reason or another, has tabletop uh, as, as part of their story, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an honor and a privilege to make that show. And, uh, and it means a lot to me that so many people all over the world shared it with us. Yeah. I mean, it was <clears throat> my, my friends and I, again, I love playing games and then they kind of brought me into it uh, on a totally different level. I mean, my friends and I still get together for D and D like we've been doing it for years, obviously, yeah. but like we did it over the pandemic um, and it was just great doing it virtually and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there is something about being in the same room with people that you love and playing games and new games. I kind of infuriate my friends in a way when we're playing a game because I don't, uh, you know, they'll go over the directions. You probably have a friend like this, but they'll go over the whole thing or whatever. And I'm, I'm a very learn as you go kind of a, a guy. But at the same time, uh, if I'm winning, it will, they'll be like, we can't read you. <laughs> like, what are you doing? And I'm just like, I don't know. And I'm sorry it's working out this There's way. There's that great kind of like drunken master style of gaming where you're just so unpredictable and, yeah. and, 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 and you're doing so many things that are like, wrong yes experienced players don't know what to do with it right um uh that is a an entirely legitimate entirely fun way of playing the way you describe learning games is that's how my wife ann learns games oh nice uh uh so what we tend to do when we're doing a new game is i'll be like here's a very broad overview Mm -hmm. you generally get to do like this is your ultimate goal in the game this is the story of the game these are the actions you do on your turn let's just play 
and refer to the rule book until you until it locks in. Right. And two or three rounds go by and she's like, okay, I've got it. Yeah. Um, but she absolutely cannot just sit there and listen to someone tell you how to play the game. Same. Also, yeah. just gently to people who teach other people how to play games, they don't need every piece of information from the very beginning and they absolutely do not need strategy. Do not confuse them with strategy. Mm-hmm. Do not confuse them with every little detail about the game that is the reason you love the game. Keep it very simple. Teach the very broad outlines of the game so that they can understand it. And then over time, find out if they like it enough that they want to play it to a level where that strategy is going to be useful and interesting for them. That is great advice. I'm going to play that on a loop. <laughs> I was at a game shop once and I was I was listening to an employee tell a woman who had come in there who was like, uh, you know, I'm just kind of, I want to try a tabletop game. I'm looking for something to do. And he was asking her all the wrong questions, in my opinion. He was asking her, well, you know, what genres do you like? Do you like fantasy? Do you like science fiction? Do you do you like princesses? Do you like dragons? Whatever. And and I think the right question to ask is, um, what traditional board game do you like? Do you like Monopoly? Monopoly is essentially a negotiation game. Give give uh, Settlers of Catan a try. Oh you God, yeah. generally, so what do you like? Well, I like Sorry or Trouble. Okay, that's kind of a take that kind of revenge game. So here are some games that kind of fit that criteria. Look at one of those. Help them figure out what do you like about existing games? Okay, cool. This is how you can try it. You don't start someone out with the director's cut of Blade Runner. You give them the theatrical release with the awful voiceover because you need it the first time you see the movie. You don't start someone out with Lords of Waterdeep. There's just too much going on there. Yeah. You start someone out in a, in a place a little lighter. You don't tell, I, I think that we tend to miss, no, uh, uh, I, listen, I understand that you love dragons. I think <laughs> dragons are great too, but this right. very complicated dragon game is not for you. Maybe try Spur, <laughs> it's about flying dragons, but it's a little bit simpler, right? right. Like meet them where they're at, find them where yeah. they're at, make it easier for them to come in. Nice. Um, uh, uh, and men don't mansplain. <laughs> perfect um i gotta ask you about big bang theory yeah uh you're playing yourself that was just i mean that had to be a joy to be you but like a fictionalized version of you obviously but uh, well, yeah i mean that cast that crew the whole thing were you a fan of the show before you had uh i was been nice that's you gonna know, be amazing I, I didn't love it in the first season i felt like it was making fun of me and people like me and then something changed in the tone of it and i felt like it was celebrating me and people like me and i wonder if what happened was the network was like, oh, it's about nerds. We have to punch down. And at some point, everybody involved in the show was like, you know, there's a lot more nerds than you think network. Yeah. We shouldn't punch down. That's just a, that's a theory. I have no idea if that is actually. You're right, though. That, is the, that all, is the tone changed. All I know is that the tone changed. Yeah. And then I loved it. Yeah. Uh, it took me 10 years of my 12-year run to get comfortable with the separation between me and the Big Bang Theory's Will Wheaton. Oh. Uh, uh, and that is part of that overlap I talked about. Right. The overlap of having things to prove and having baggage that I was carrying and those motivating factors uh, that grew out of a toxic and dysfunctional relationship with abusive mm-hmm. narcissists. Um, once all that was gone, I could really settle in and enjoy it for what it was. Um, everyone wants to know, yes, they are as awesome as you think they are. Yes, they are a family. Yes, they are exactly like the cast of Next Generation in terms of love and support for one another. Um they're incredible. I am still friends with all of them. I can and do text them all the time just to see what's up and see what's going right. on. 
Um, Bill Prady, uh, who co-created Big Bang Theory, has become one of my closest friends. Um, nice. uh, uh, I'm going to his house for Passover. I can't wait. Oh, it's going nice. to be so exciting. Um, um, uh, there, uh, uh, it is. It was a gift. It was a gift and a privilege. Um, and uh, and I'm glad that I got out of my own way and said yes because initially my thought was I don't want to play myself. I want to play a character. Right. Never realizing that I could do both of those things at the same time. Yeah. Did you get to Im uh, like improvise a lot with them? Did they get to add, did you get to put in your input on the show or was it, you know? No. Um, okay. uh, comedy is music. Yeah. And, and a sitcom is a symphony. Mm -hmm. And every single piece of the orchestra has to play from the exact same sheet of music all the time for everything to come together. You can occasionally flourish a bit. You can occasionally throw in a, a, a small extra half note on your way to the next chord but you really all have to stay on the same page so that right. everything kind of times out. And I learned this from Jim Parsons who was struggling uncharacteristically in a scene. And I, Jim called the director over and he said, listen, I don't hear the music in this. You got to just like, I, it's, and, and the director went, wow. you're not, yeah, you're not hearing it because it's not there. This was on like the date, you know, the first day of rehearsal for that episode. Wow. He's like, we will, we know it. We're going to work on it. And it'll be fine by, you know, by the end of the day tomorrow. And it was. Wow. Um, I also learned that it is entirely appropriate and welcomed to go to, uh, on tape night, I could go to the writers and say, can I just pitch an alt line? Can I just pitch a joke? This is a thing that I think might be funny in this moment. And uh, uh, they would almost always say yes. Um, and uh, uh, I would pitch the joke. And then they would either go like, yeah, let's try it. Or... Always, that's really funny, but we don't need it. You know, like they're always really supportive and enthusiastic. It was never that is a terrible joke, and you're the worst person who has ever existed. This is what my head was constantly yeah. telling. Oh, me. to get through um, to get through that part in your brain to get yeah. to that is people don't realize the struggle of that. I also got the incredible privilege of working alongside Adam West. Oh yeah, and, and Bob Newhart mm -hmm. and. Uh, 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 all of those guys that were in my secret D&D game toward the end of the series. Like, oh. I mean, it just, it was amazing. I was on the set and like Chad Billingsley, who was a, a, a pitcher for the Dodgers, came to the set. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I'm like, I if you cut me, Dodger blue explodes out of my body. <laughs> and, uh, and I was just like, ah! Like, you know, like, everybody else was pretty chill. And I was just like, I can't, I can't, I yeah. absolutely can't. I cannot be, I can't be cool. It is not going to happen. Were you that way with him more so than Adam West? Oh yeah. Oh wow. All right. Yeah, well, because Adam West and I share a profession. Right. Adam West expects a peer relationship from me. Sure. When we're on the set. Chad Billingsley's a baseball player. Right? <laughs> yeah. I'm a baseball fan. It is entirely appropriate for me to fan at him, right? That's a great rule. When Adam was on the set, All of us, I feel like this was kind of led by John Ross Bowie and me. All of us were like, Adam West, tell us stories about being Adam West. Just tell us anything you want to tell us about your entire career as Adam West, and we'll just sit here and listen. And he was like, I will now hold court. Oh, my God. Do you remember one of the craziest stories he told you guys? I do. Oh, what was it? I will not tell you. Oh, all right. Oh, it's one of those. Oh, damn it. Um, or backstage. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so when um, Adam West is like, I'm going to tell you something, 
you respect that. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I the know fact that I can tell the story that he told me a story is going to be way cooler than what the actual story eventually. I've, that's very true. You, everybody's going to be left wondering. Yeah. Um, I want to get to Still Just a Geek. That's the okay. second installment of your of your book. How how quickly after you wrote the first one were you like, I'm not done. I got to start the second one. Twenty two years. Twenty two years. Wow. Okay. But like you, I, mean, but, I, had, but I mean, I had forgotten about Just a Geek. I had. You did. I had, well, I mean, when I originally wrote it and originally published it, it was very mildly successful. It was appreciated by most of the people who read it, but it reached a very small audience. Okay. And I honestly thought that just like it had been forgotten and hmm. that was fine. And uh, the reason that Still Just a Geek happened is I had written a novel that I knew wasn't 100% finished, uh, but I was hopeful that there would be an editor in the world who was like, oh, I see the potential of this and I would like to work with you to to get it across the finish line. And Capital P Publishing was like, absolutely not interested. <laughs> so uninterested. Wow. We did not even get feedback. It was just, thank you, we'll pass. And I was like, okay, I have to, I, that's fine. That tells me that I need to grow as a writer. Awesome. Mm -hmm. Maybe what I'm looking for is more of a thesis advisor than an editor. That's cool. I know how to do that. Okay. Great. One of the editors, David Pomerico at Moro, said, I remember Just a Geek, and I think you could revisit Just a Geek. Talk about what it means to you now, and then back it up with a lot of your essays that you've done in the last few years. And I nice. was like... I mean, if you want to pay me to be a writer, that sounds like I'm a professional writer. I would love to do that. Yeah. And when I got started on it, I regretted that choice immediately because I did not like the person I saw. And I was embarrassed and and uh, and I was regretful. And it took me a fair amount of time to find patience, compassion, and empathy as 49-year-old me for 29-year-old me. Wow. Who was really hard on 19-year-old me. Hmm. Um and uh, in the process of doing all of that, I learned a ton about myself. I grew a lot as a person. I grew a lot as a writer. Um, and all of the things I held back when I wrote Just a Geek, because they were either too personal or too painful, or more commonly, because they contradicted the story my mom told herself that I believed. Wow. Um, all of that is now included in annotations. And the way I hope the audience will approach this is as if I, I'm going to use a prompt because I got my hardbacks today. Oh, so, nice. Uh, so it's going to be, I'm going to, so it will be like as if I am saying something like, uh, Ryan made the effort to appreciate it, even at his own peril. And then I look up and say, the boys remain extraordinarily close to this day. I love their love. So that's how the footnotes work, right? Nice. It's like, I'm reading you this thing that I wrote and there are these moments where I'm like, blah, 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 dumb thing. <sighs> okay, hang on. <laughs> this wasn't okay and I didn't know it. 28-year-old Will, sit down. We're going to have a talk about this so that you don't repeat this mistake. And right. that's, how, that's how it all kind of really came together. Man, that's like levels of therapy. Yeah, it's interesting. When I wrote it and I got to the end and I was doing the afterword, the question from David was, what kind of catharsis did you get yeah. doing this? And the answer was absolutely none. I got re-traumatized. Wow. When I read it for the audiobook, mm -hmm. when I said it out loud, all of the unresolved stuff that 
contributed to what I just thought of as re-traumatizing healed itself. Wow. Saying these things out loud, holding people who had really hurt me accountable, forgiving myself for mistakes I made, owning things I did that I felt were regretful, immature, childish, embarrassing, acknowledging the growth, all of that, um, saying it all. There is a point in Just a Geek in the William Shatner story where I say, I don't want to say it out loud because if I do, it makes it real. Well, saying all of this out loud made it all real. And all of that, it was like the healing and the catharsis and um, all of the validation and love that I had needed at different stages of my life was finally accessible to Mm. me, 49-year-old Will. So I was able to, and this is part of my PTSD therapy, I was able to create in my head the the real construct of the younger version of me and love him the way he always deserved to be loved and remind him that he was always enough and uh, that none of this stuff he is struggling through, none of the things he is suffering with are his fault. And uh, I could write that, but I didn't feel it until I actually said it. Wow. Um, so at the end of this entire process, because the audiobook's the last thing I do, mm-hmm. um, a lot of things changed and I actually wanted to go back and rewrite some stuff oh, because no I saw some things that had changed in me. And the um, David and everyone at Morrow was extremely supportive and encouraged me to just speak extemporaneously while I was doing the audiobook. And oh, I could wow. just say, you know, I just remembered this thing that I didn't write about when it happened. And I just want to talk about it a little bit. And I could just kind of extemporaneously talk about those things. So there's a fair amount of stuff that's in the audiobook that isn't in the print book. That is um, so cool. And I hope that when we do the paperback release, and I mm-hmm. still can't believe I'm doing a book that's going to justify a paperback release. That's really <laughs> like we're already planning it. Like it's a, it's a, yeah. it's a foregone conclusion. It's a deal. They're like, we are doing a paperback release, which wow. I absolutely cannot believe. But I think when we do the paperback release, I'll be able to grab transcript from the audiobook session and add them as additional footnotes. Oh, that's beautiful. In, in that version. And I noticed there's a couple of big chunks of my life that are not included in Still Just a Geek, which leaves it incomplete if it's meant to be a memoir. Big chunks. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, quitting drinking is a huge part of it. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, the that little bit of, of, of my life that was deeply meaningful where I was a working actor full time going between Eureka and Leverage and the Big Bang Theory. I don't talk about that at all. Wow. Um, uh, like all of that is just kind of like, it's in a montage of like, and then some stuff happened. And then we, <laughs> like, you know, it's like several hours later. And then like, with me, right? um, and I kind of want to like, I just kind of want to like drop in kind of like an episode in there. You yeah. Know? Like, like a short treks. So I want to just drop it in to give right. a background, a little extra information. We'll see if they'll let me do it. I was like, can I buy like 10,000 words to put in? The- <laughs> they were like, we'll see. Or so, what what yeah. classic 80s song are you going to use for the montage piece? That's oh, the big question. It's going to be the best around, of course. Yeah. Oh, that's of so great. Of course it's going to be the best around. Of Like, no doubt. I didn't even have to think about that it. That is so fast. Yeah. I love it. Oh, God. Now it's going to be in my head for the rest of the day, which yeah. I'm not complaining about. it's going to be Push It to the Limit by Frank Stallone. Ooh. It's going to be one of those. But it's definitely like a Rocky-era trading montage. Like, Absolutely. Of course it is. Yes. 
Oh my God. Fucking great, man. Uh, I want to get to some of the questions because people have been watching and commenting the entire way. Um, oh, that's very kind. I can't uh, see that. So I'm thrilled that people have come yes, this early it, in the day to participate in this with us. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, okay. I'm just going to throw some up in the in the meantime while I'm looking for people. Okay. Um, what is this? Can we see Marlo? Can oh, we... I wish you could see Marlo. I'm in my game room, which is detached from my house. It's a converted garage. Marlo's uh, asleep on the couch inside. If I went in to get her, you would have this big empty thing. And I don't even know if she'd want to get up on the chair, but it's Marlo Monday on Instagram. So if you go to It's Will Wheaton on Instagram, you can see her. Yes. Also, uh, Marlo loves you. Somebody said, I'm just here for the Tron cabinet in the background. Starcross because... mage. Um, listen, uh, I'm not getting any money for this. This is, uh, this is a like super free endorsement. Um, arcade one up you guys, arcade <laughs> one up is great. They make fantastic cabinets. They're about three fifths scale. So you can fit a few of them in the house over in that side of the room. I have a tempest machine. Um, uh, oh. it's, it's great. They make uh, a star Wars arcade, the vector graphics with that weird kind of yoke stick. It is my ultimate dream that they do a Nintendo machine so that oh. I can play Donkey Kong uh, uh, Super Mario Brothers, Popeye, um, and yes. if they can somehow do two monitors, punch out again. Oh my God, the Popeye uh, game was yeah. so hard. Um, um, it's not especially expensive. It's a few hundred dollars. Um, and the like, the value that I extract from this as a child of the 80s is um, hard to overstate. Oh. <laughs> also, the fact that I assembled it with my son, we did it as a father-son activity when he was here visiting, is extremely meaningful to me. Every time I play it, I'm like, some of Ryan's loves in this machine. Oh, yeah. That's really special. Um, somebody, uh, Kess the Korak, said, so very totally here for the possibility of seeing Marlo. Marlo, we got a lot of Marlo comments. Will's awesome you. and all. <laughs> I feel all of you. I assure you that I love Marlo just as much as you do. Oh, uh, let's see. Um... Model newbie said high enough communication skill to make up for the Wheaton rolling curse. What is that? I cannot roll dice. Well, oh. listen, I know that dice are just a statistical representation of a broad bell shaped curve of numbers, right? 3d6 tends to give you a bell shaped curve of numbers that tend to be in the area of around 12. That's just what seems to happen. You have a 5% chance of rolling uh, 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 any number on a 20-sided die, right? An icosahedron. Um, uh, statistically, I should hit one of these uh, mean, like big, meaningful numbers about 20% of the time, and I don't. I oh. never do. I believe that the universe seeks balance. I believe that I have extraordinarily bad luck so that somewhere in the world where a person really needs something to go their way, I roll the die. It just shits the bed for me, and they make that light so they don't miss the job interview. That's what that's what I tell myself anyway. Oh my god, that's great. My um, oh my god, my friend created a uh, an app for all of us, um, a D and D app. I am getting a battery thing on my laptop, so what's going to happen now mm. is this. This not great walking around the game. Room is happen. <laughs> Perfect. As you're, as so you're doing what, that, we what's got to happen while I do this. Oh my God, my lamp fell off. So no more lights happening, but. <laughs> and the app is called Lore, by the way. That's what the app is called that my friend created. Uh, it's a great, great D&D uh, &D app. Oh, anyway, no. I'm back. We can do this. Let's do that lightning round you were talking about. Let's yeah, go. yeah. So uh, if you go back in time and talk to your younger self, what piece of advice would you give yourself that would help you today? I've spent a lot of time thinking about this, and uh, I think it is extremely important that we raise confident, um, compassionate, empathetic children 
who establish and then protect their boundaries. Mm. And to be confident, compassionate, and empathetic, we have to be good at protecting our boundaries, establishing and protecting our boundaries, uh, and absolutely refusing to give time or space to anyone who, for whatever reason, will not respect our boundaries. I wasn't taught any of that as a kid, I think primarily because the people who were my parents really benefited from me not enforcing boundaries. Mm -hmm. So if I could give myself advice, it would actually be to reparent myself, hmm. um, to expect that it is completely normal and healthy to have boundaries and to expect those boundaries to be respected. Nice. Um, uh, the second question is, uh, and I'm, we may have already covered it, but just in case, what had to end in your life, good or bad, that led you to where you are today? I had to quit drinking. Hmm. Um, I, when I stopped abusing alcohol, I was able to do what I had known I needed to do from when I was about eight years old, which was confront my parents hmm. and say, look, uh, these are the things that I experienced. These are my memories. And I am hurt by these things. And I, I really want to work it out. I really want to talk about it and I want to heal it. And my parents are the kinds of people who you can't talk to. You got to write everything down because if you say it, then they will contradict you. Say you didn't say a thing you just said and then argue about it. So I had to be able to be like, no, man, you're saying that I said this, but it's right here. This is what I said. I sent an email that laid it all out. I spent days working on it. And I said, and listen, here is kind of the core of, of, my, of the pain that I experience in my life. I feel like my dad doesn't love me. And I just don't know what to do about that. And I hit send. Now I'm a dad. I have two boys and I have a daughter-in-law and I cherish them. If any of them communicated to me, I feel like you don't love me. I, I would drop everything to address that immediately. I sent that email to both of my parents. My mom didn't reply for four months. Wow. When she did, and they were radio silent. Both of them radio silent for four months. When she finally did, it was about how it was all my fault and I was being dramatic and overstating things. <laughs> By the time my dad decided to reply to me, it was six months. And the, and the subject of my dad's email was, your mom wants me to email you. And I, at that point, knew everything I needed to know. Wow. And, and, and that nothing was ever going to change. I had known that I needed to have this conversation since I was a teenager and I had tried to several times, but was always shut down. So this was kind of like my last best effort to right. just say, I really want you to be part of my life, but not this way. Right. And they were like, I guess, well, we're going to be part of your life on our terms only. And if that's not acceptable to you, um, then just tough luck. At which point I said, this is awful, but I got to heal myself and you're, clearly not going to be part of it. So I have to say goodbye. Wow. I never would have done that if I had continued hiding in the bottom of a bottle. Right. 
So it was those two things that kind of came together. I think the the alcohol abuse was a symptom of the PTSD and and the and the the unaddressed childhood trauma. And yeah. once that was gone, I was able to do the hard work and the support of my wife and my children and our friends who are chosen family, my friends who are in my Star Trek family, um, mm. is, is just invaluable uh, in helping all of that happen. Nice, man. That was beautiful. Um, and now just the last question is kind of goofy. Yeah. Uh, so um, uh, so it kind of ties into the theme of the show, dystopia tonight. If this was a genuine dystopia yeah. and uh, we're talking whatever you like, alien zombies, comet headed toward the earth, climate change, whatever the deal is, everybody's yeah. last day. How does Will Wheaton go out? What's your epic death? You know, I'm a Cold War kid. Okay. Um, so like I actually grew up in the 70s, fully believing that it was only a matter of time before the nuclear missiles rained down on all of us. Right. Um, I haven't felt that level of existential terror um, un until like the very beginning of the pandemic. And, and even that wasn't as terrifying as the way I felt as a kid. Right. I made a decision very, very young that I will not go into a bomb shelter to survive this thing. I'm going outside and I am going to accept what I absolutely cannot control. And I hope that I'm with my wife and my children. Nice. And I want to be with the people I love more than anybody else in the world. Um, uh, uh, I wish that I could make a fun, silly joke about it. Um, and something, you know, something about being blasted by orbital mind control lasers or <laughs> like, you know, zombie werewolves or whatever. But, but the reality is, and I was actually going to, going to comment on this at the very beginning of our conversation. I, I love dystopian fiction. I love dystopian yeah. movies. I, 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 I love, um, uh, the imagined realities of what dystopia could sort of mean. Mm -hmm. And, um, starting with the, uh, 2016 election and the normalization of cruelty, the uh, uh, nearly unchecked spread of fascism, the way fascists have been able to completely capture one of the two main political parties in my country. Yeah. Um, ha uh, uh, seeing uh, how uh, unequal and how uh, uh, just like massively uh, uh, corrupted the entire uh, like system is. Um, I don't enjoy dystopia like I once did. It feels too real. I feel like I'm living in it. Yeah. And, and the thing is like, yeah, well, I don't know. What am I going to do if this thing that's happening in Ukraine goes global and nuclear? Well, right. I thought about this. What am I going to do when Trump runs, loses, and there's a civil war? What right. am I going to do then? It's like, it's I, like, these are, these are things I really think about because they seem like possibilities, which makes the fun dystopian story about living in an abandoned shopping mall a little less fun. <laughs> I know it does. Right. <laughs> exactly. That's why we, but I do hope that in the dystopian future, radio has its comeback. Yes. Shortwave has its comeback. Music on the radio has its comeback. Uh, that mysterious voice of a person hiding behind the persona of Emmanuel Goldstein comes back. Like we get, we get all of it again. You know, I'm here for that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, dude. I want to thank you so much for spending time with me. I really appreciate it. Everybody uh, watching. Thank you so much. Sorry to even get to everybody's questions. Um, that's my fault. Normally uh, Tom's producing on the other end and gets that stuff up. 
Um, but yeah, man, it, it's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much for Thank joining you. me. I've really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. The time super flew by. Yeah. Um, uh, and boy, is it, it's going to be interesting me getting to work now. Um, uh, 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 thanks for your time um, and thanks to all of your your viewers and listeners uh, just for for supporting and for being part of my story I feel obligated to just tell everybody that Still Just a Geek drops on April 12th and you can find me online at willwheaton.net and then the social uh, media that I hang out on is uh, my Facebook page it's Will Wheaton and my Instagram account also it's Will Wheaton Um, that's where you can find more Excellent. Thank you so, so much, man. It's been great. Thanks, Take care. I appreciate it. Bye. Yeah, peace out. Dystopia tonight.